1 Nehemiah 1, verses 1 through 4, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Then Matthew 3, verse 16 through 4, 2. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Finally, Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18. Jesus said, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. If you noticed, one thing that all three of those passages have in common is fasting. We're going to talk about fasting this morning. Uh, And like with all of the spiritual disciplines they're sometimes called, I'm thinking about prayer, scripture reading, um, almsgiving, sharing the faith, and so on. There's a danger when you enter into fasting, like those other spiritual practices, that when you start doing the practice, you focus so much on the practice that you forget about the person that the practice is supposed to lead you towards. Now, this is really important. If you ever try to do anything like pray or read scripture or fast, every spiritual discipline is a means, is a means to an end. It is not an end in itself. Like you're like, all right, started my morning with prayer, scripture, great. I'm going to dive into my day by my own strength. Every, every spiritual discipline is a means to an end, which is a person. It's a means to communion with the living God. And we know this danger of missing the person for the sake of the practice is particularly there with the discipline of fasting because scripture says so. A number of times. Jesus says so pretty famously on the Sermon on the Mount. He very clearly also says, when you fast, wash your, wash your face, anoint, anoint yourself. But he has this big caution. Watch out for the hypocrites who love to have people's eyes on them when they're fasting. So it's a danger. He tells us so. So when we talk about fasting, we need to start by saying, what is this for? What's it really for? If you need a definition for for fasting, there's one that hasn't failed me yet, and it's this. Fasting is forsaking for the sake of. Forsaking something 
but it's never an end in itself, right? Never, ever, ever forsaking something for the sake of communion with God. So that's the what. I'm mainly going to focus on two other questions I'll put to fasting. Why do we do it as we look across Scripture? Um, there are several different occasions, even in the three passages that, passages that we read, why people fast in Scripture. There's not just one reason. There is something that holds them all in common, though, and we're going to look at that. Why we fast according to Scripture, and then how to do it according to Scripture. So first, why? First, let me, let me assure you, it's worth noting that you have fasted from something in your life. We all have. And I'll give you an example. Have you ever had somebody come, coming over for dinner, let's say later in the week, and um, earlier in the week, you kind of dig through the pantry and you eat something a little bit more plain, maybe less rich, like let's say like egg noodles or ramen, and not the good ramen over on Girard Avenue or under the L, like top ramen, you, you eat the simpler stuff so that when neighbors come over, you can feast. Like you can have steak. Or you can have, you know, if you're not a meat eater, like what, whatever, whatever else the feast is that not meat eaters have. <laughs> um, I know, I've been there. I just can't, you know, put my finger on it myself. Forgive me. You've done this. Of course you've done this. How about this one? Have you ever stayed up late, fasted from sleep? Have you ever fasted from sleep? to make sure someone you care about got home safely. What are these things? Both these examples. They are forsaking something for the sake of something. For the sake of what? Communion. You're forsaking a good thing for the sake of a rich communion, a greater communion, let's say, with others. You did with something a little poorer or you did with less for the sake of greater communion with others. I, I think we would all, and we all do, it's not like, any of us never do this. We will forsake many things for the sake of many things. The question is, do we ever do it for what Jesus calls the one thing necessary? I'm thinking about Luke 10 here, 38 through 42. Martha and Mary. Martha's very, very, very busy in the kitchen. Mary by all human concerns and standards relating to hospitality, should be. But she's not. She's very still at the feet of Jesus, just beholding him and listening to his words and being in his presence. Do we ever forsake many things or any things for the sake of this one thing needful? This is the fasting that's commended in Scripture. The first passage I read is from Nehemiah chapter 1, and if you're not familiar with that part of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures in your in your Bible, it's a moment in the history of Israel of, of both personal crisis for Nehemiah, the man, and national crisis for Israel. Not, not just a moment, it's the end of many decades of exile. The people of Israel have been uprooted from their land, and the scriptures are very clear. This is largely due to their own sin. There were nations that had driv been driven out because of their wickedness, because of their worshiping of demons, um, their practices of child sacrifice and every kind of unspeakable act, and Israel themselves became worse. It's astounding how bad it gets. And the scriptures are very clear. Israel got worse than those nations, and so God, as an act of judgment, which you might also say is not totally set apart from his mercy, keeping them from getting worse, 
sent them into exile for decades. And at this point, kingdom after kingdom, you know, of, of empire that, uh, you know, went from the Assyrians to the Babylonians. And at this point in Nehemiah's life, it's the Persian Empire is the newest empire on the scene. Nehemiah is a Hebrew who has come up in the ranks as a servant of the king of Persia. And he has a little bit of privilege that he's stewarding. And he gets in conversation, the first few verses of the book, with exiles who had returned to the land or a few stragglers who had somehow been able to remain, a very small remnant. And he finds out just how shameful and terrible the circumstances are. We have every reason to believe he's never been there himself because the Israelites had been in exile for so long. And he hears about the shameful state of the holy city, Jerusalem. And he's inquiring about his distant homeland. And he hears how bad things are, and he decides God is calling him to go help rebuild and to lead a wave of returnees. And he decides that this is an occasion for fasting, for asking God's mercy, for an extended confession of sin. Let's not forget how we got here as we prepare to return and not forget that it could happen again. It's a time of reflection. It's a time of being wide awake for how bad things can get and how merciful God can be for welcoming us back. How do I apply this to us? Um, some of you feel exile more than others. Um, let me just give you a few examples of those who I've encountered in this congregation over the years. Have you ever just taken a day off work because your family was struggling or going through transition? And you're like, I need to be awake right now to the needs of my family. I, I need to forsake a day at work or, or more for the sake of, if I can, for the sake of my family or, or my church. If your church family is going through something, to take time intentionally to pray and confess and fast. How did we get here? Where are we going? What ways do we need to be awake to what God is calling us to, to repentance and faith? Have you ever called out of work or called off a vacation because of a funeral? Forsaking something for the sake of mourning with other people alongside of you. How about this one? Have you ever been in jail or prison or in court or kicked out of your home and had to sit in a cell or on a curb or sleep on a friend's couch and say, what have I done to get here? It might take more than five minutes of focus, that one. That's fasting. You might actually want to skip a meal or find some other way to avoid passive entertainment for a season, let's say. To sit with your circumstances and with God and to pray and repent and watch for the sake of awakening your attention you fast sometimes. It is isn't it amazing how far we can sleepwalk, even when things are really bad, even in the midst of devastating circumstances, and not turn and say, what's going on here, and what exactly might God be calling me to? So that's, that's some of the, that's some of the, uh, the why for Nehemiah. 
And I would suggest to you that all the different contexts for fasting, I mean, think about the sackcloth and ashes that the citizens of Nineveh put on, if you're familiar with the book of Jonah. They go into fasting when Jonah says, hey, repent and believe. You're an evil city. And they do. And they fast. Think about Christ in the wilderness, fasting. It's not always the result of personal sin. Sometimes it's the point of crisis. Sometimes it's the point of God's about to do something. But what's it got in common? Waking up the heart, mind, and soul to our need for communion with God and acknowledging the ways that we usually ignore communion with God. That's what it's always for. Whether it's for personal sin, national or family or church crisis, or just you're really on the verge of some mission. What's he doing? How am I taking it for granted? What does it require of me and us? That's why, according to Scripture, you fast. Secondly, how do you fast? How do you do it? For this, I wanted to turn to the end of Matthew 3 and the beginning of Matthew 4. In, our, in your other Gospels, this is Mark 1, and it's, it's Luke 3 and the beginning of Luke 4. For Jesus Christ, this is not so much a moment of personal or national crisis, although in a way it is. For the most part, for Jesus, it's a moment of mission for him. He's going just from being the carpenter's son to public ministry. He comes out of his baptism in the Jordan River, and there's that descent of the Spirit, his anointing, his empowerment, his set-aparting, his setting-apartness for ministry, turning a page into his public life. And he knows it's going to require everything of him, and he knows it's going to end at the cross. So how does he spend the first 40 days knowing, wow, I'm really on the verge of something here? Sinless as he is. He fasts. He sees the work of God before him. So he fasts for 40 days. And do you remember what happens towards the end of that time? Immediately he's tempted. Like, good thing he was fasting. Because according to Hebrews, we know Jesus was tempted in every possible way, just as you and I are. that's That's actually what makes him a worthy savior. He's not like just... God, who's got a little bit of humanity, who never was really tested. Life was pretty easy because you know, after all, he was God. No, he was also totally a human being with wants and a will and a desire. And he was ready because he fasted to be tempted. Here's how I think you can understand what Jesus went through during that season and how it applies to us. Um, Think about a soldier who is put on watch for the night during a war. And it's a job for, uh, you're you're a soldier, and it's your job to stay awake. What are you doing if you're a soldier on night watch? Well, you're, you're watching for three things, not just one thing, three things at least all the time. You're watching for the enemy. We're not, we're not naive. There's an enemy of our soul. There's, uh, there, there are, the scriptures testify, demonic forces looking to take down the people of God. Watchman's waiting for the enemy. Watchman's also, though, watching over himself. How? Well, you better not fall asleep, right? You're, you're alert. There's stuff at stake. Eyes open. 
Don't drift off. You know we're capable of it. So, so you're watching for the enemy. You're watching for yourself. What are you also always watching for? The morning. The morning always comes, right? But you got, you're watching for it. You know, you're waiting for it. You're, you don't doubt that it's eventually going to come, right? Relief will come. The sun will rise. God's purposes, he promises, will be accomplished in this world, in your life, and in our common life. We don't have to doubt that, but you do have to wait for it sometimes. You've got to wait for the morning. Jesus was doing all three, and we're doing all three when we fast. How are we really under attack? How am I not ready for that at all? Because apart from the enemy, I'm entirely capable of ruining my life by my sin, by, by myself. And I'm usually very weak, and I love to distract myself from reality. But then also, like, where do you really not believe that he can show up any time and do anything? Morning. We're always doing all three, ideally, but we're not. So during certain seasons, we fast just to exercise the heart, to imagine with God what our every day could be more like. Third passage I read is Jesus, Jesus criticizing people who fast. And you can't turn away from that either. But look at what he's criticizing. Verse 16 of Matthew 6. When you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting might be seen by others. Okay, so that they might be seen by others. Remember what, how we fast. We're the ones watching. We're the ones watching with our eyes for the enemy, ourselves, and, and the morning. What's wrong with hypocritical fasting? It's saying, let others' eyes be on me. You see how I do it? See how amazing I am at this thing? See how worthy I am of your respect and esteem because I'm so great at this spiritual discipline. That's what Jesus is criticizing, not the discipline itself. Jesus' criticism is for those who fast in order for others to notice them. So we got a why and a how here, folks. Why to stay awake? How? By watching the enemy, ourselves, and for the morning. But here's the thing that's sometimes tricky to balance. Um, I, I think it really is tricky to balance. There's a way to fast, um, there's a way to mourn, there's a way to watch for the work of God that, that forgets that grace has already come to us in Jesus. Here's what I mean. Every day at communion, we say with the church, Christ has died, past tense. Christ is risen, also past tense, with present implication. But Christ will come again. That's still to come. So there's the already, the present, and the not yet all together in that phrase. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. So there's a way that you don't have to act like Christ hasn't already been victorious in the midst of your fasting. Sometimes I've found myself on my own or with others fasting. And it's almost like there's no joy at all. Like we have to play a game. Like Jesus hasn't come and forgiven all of our sins, and assured us victory over death itself, and secured our eternity. But we've got to ignore that a little while, because we've got to be really sad for a while. I hope you see the tension here. Our sins are forgiven. 
The power of death has been broken. He has made access for our way home. That's our present reality in light of the future that we get to enjoy now. We don't have to put it aside on a shelf just because we need to fast for a while. But aren't we still waiting for his arrival, for his coming again, for his mending the things that still hurt in this life, his ongoing experiential healing, for the ways we run back to the sins still that we've been freed from? Isn't that also our reality? So there's this already and this not yet. What has the church done about this across the centuries? The church has collectively often observed across traditions that it's appropriate to have certain seasons of mourning, leaning into the morning, and then certain seasons of leaning into the joy because they're both our reality. And in many branches of the church family tree, a lot of you know, an annual focused season of fasting has been the season of Lent, which begins this coming Wednesday. That's one of the reasons why I'm talking about this today. Fast from a meal. You know, for some of you, we always say, depending on um, your biological factors or uh, habitual factors or other health reasons, maybe it's actually requiring more faith of you to actually eat than to not eat. If you have questions about that, you can talk to me or another leader here or somebody else that you trust about what your for the sake of is as you forsake. But I wonder if for all of us it should also at least be something like giving up one night a week minimum of the passive entertainment that we lean into, which is not in of itself sinful. Of course not. For the sake of keeping watch. What if at least one evening this Lent, one evening a week, we filled that time, otherwise spent with passive entertainment, filling the time with readings, spiritual readings from Scripture, prayer, stillness, keeping watch over what is going on in you, what's going on in your circumstances, in the city, in the world, not turning away, but toward it, both in mourning and with hope. Remembering the promises and presence of God and how much you need it and ignore your need for it. All that stuff once a week during Lent. I think we would just really need a great reason not to try that together. Let's try it. Or maybe you could join in Carol Davis's Lenten prayer group on Sunday afternoons right in this building that begins next Sunday, the 26th of February. Anyway, that's the season ahead, season of Lent, beginning this week. But I also want to remind you all where we've been so far in 2023. We just wrapped up a sermon series about the vision of our church, the vision statement, Liberty River Wards exists to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Christ for our neighborhoods. We've talked about where we've been over the past 20 years, 19 for this particular church, 20 years as a communion of churches where we've been, how we perceive we're called to stay on that course, how wisely we're called to redirect in some ways. And what does that mean for you and your family in the midst of it all? You have something to offer. You have something to say. You have a way you can serve. 
as the very presence of Christ. And our church needs you awake. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.